Welcome to Financial Foresight. This podcast was made by four fee-only CFP professionals to help consumers understand the financial industry. Let's meet your hosts. They're either naive, they're stupid, or they're lazy. You know, the other thing is, is uh, my ceiling fan just went out in my kitchen today. (laughs) He is the commander in chief on this video right now. And uh, man, I am feeling controlled and empowered and safe. Don't stop for Dwight's baby. We can edit that out. (laughs) All of the podcast hosts are owners of RIAs registered in their respective home states. All commentary on this podcast represent the opinions of individuals and not their firms. All commentary is financial education, not financial advice. So let's get started. Welcome to the Financial Foresight Podcast. We have the whole crew together and it's going to be a little bit different of an episode. So this episode, rightfully titled Diversification Smackdown, we're going to talk a little bit about asset allocation, investing. We've all gotten a lot of questions kind of through the process of coronavirus and people being at home. And I've heard more people opening up and having Robinhood trading accounts than I've ever had before. So I've just gotten inundated and we have all kind of agreed upon that, that we want to have this conversation. And Colin, you want to kind of kick it off with either your thoughts, kind of where we're going to go with the conversation, and it'll definitely be different than normal. I'll say that. Yeah, I know uh, that we've we've all touched on diversification a little bit here. Asset allocation, we all agree, has a large uh, percentage of the actual returns in, in the portfolios. But I think we'll probably start to differ maybe on how the portfolio is structured or maybe the assets that you actually hold on your balance sheet that comprises your net worth. Maybe we'll start to uh, diverge there, which will be really fun. But uh, really, I, I've, I've had, especially in today's uh, environment, had a ton of people asking me, where should I best position my money? What, how should I, you know, what stock should I buy? Who's going to be the winners and losers? And I actually had so many inquiries. I finally just made it a blog video, just talking about diversification. And really my stance in that video, and I know we're going to take this in a lot of different directions, was that nobody knows with any level of certainty. And I kind of go on to say that it's really, really difficult to try to actually outperform the market and be able to start picking winners and losers. And whenever you make a trade or you buy Delta or Carnival or any other, you know, uh, stock that has supposedly been demolished over this uh, Corona pandemic, there's someone else on the other end of that trade, you know, so there, this market is a living, breathing animal and, and, and it's a comprised of thousands and millions of people coming together in one location to make their decisions. And everybody has different time horizons, different criteria uh, for their reason of the trade. And it was almost comical when I had a client reach out and ask about buying Delta and the airline stocks. And literally that Friday, uh, Warren Buffett came out and said that he was selling a huge position. And of course, like I said, everybody's trading for different reasons. So, you know, an 80 year old billionaire is probably trading for different reasons than maybe a 35 year old in their 401k. So, you know, that's, you know, it's not apples to apples, but if you are buying Delta, you know, at their low, I think at the time it was like 60% down 60% year to date, you're technically on the other end of a trade with Warren Buffett. I don't really want to be on the other end of a lot of trades with Warren Buffett. You know, the dude has had a, had a pretty decent track record. So um, when, when I'm talking about building wealth for long term, I'm thinking about trying to build markets that really represent the global market as a whole and, and really kind of taking the stance that nobody knows with any level of certainty which individual winners are going to continue to be winners in the future. I mean, the S&P 500 in the 1950s and 60s, only about half of the companies that were in the S&P 500 are still around today. Who are going to be the, the winners in the next uh, 50, 60 years? Nobody knows. So I'm trying to say, okay, I understand that nobody knows, but how do we still win? So how do we make uh, investing not gambling and keep it as investing? And my philosophy is to invest in human civilization as a whole. So I know I've ranted on that before on this, on this podcast and really buying everything and saying, okay, if you believe that humans are gonna continue to thrive and survive for the next 100, 200, 500 years, trying to own and, and uh, capitalize on the growth 
and the trajectory that we're currently on of continuing to innovate, continuing to build better and safer environments and communities and literacy rates are going up and, and the world is safer, believe it or not, than we've ever seen in all of, in all of world history. So that's really what I'm betting on or investing in when I'm putting together portfolios for clients and of course thinking time horizon. So even if you're betting on index funds from around the world, they can still lose 50% of their value overnight. So having a large cash position and understanding your goals and your time horizons is really kind of the thing that I hang my hat on the most. Yeah, I was gonna say real quick, can you just like unpack from your perspective? So is it like stocks, bonds, cash is kind of what you would say would be the core of what you believe in and think like long term for investors? Well, I mean, I think there's a lot of different asset classes that are, are built into that. I mean, you know, that's kind of uh, leaving out real estate and leaving out, um, you know, bonds has, you know, corporate uh, emerging market, uh, U.S. government. I mean, there's so many different, bond, uh, you know, levels underneath that, but holding ETFs, index funds that represent tons and tons of different asset classes that have thousands of holdings within those asset classes, um, I think would be a pretty safe summary. Got it. Ian Dwight, any thoughts? Uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and follow up on Colin. The, the portfolio that I kind of hang my hat on is a seven asset class portfolio for similar reasons to what Colin was talking about. I generally believe that some part of the market will do well over any given period of time. We just don't know what part, right? Um, and that's been proven in, in a lot of different ways. So when, when I'm looking at building a portfolio for a client, I start off with large, mid, and small cap stock. Uh, as well as international, making up that part of the portfolio. And international can both be large international companies and emerging markets. Um, and then in the fixed income side is where I'm a little different than I think some some people. I don't view fixed income as only bonds um, because bonds are inherently uh, subject to credit risk and I just like looking at uh, other inflation adjusted things like commodities and real estate in that space um, because I think real estate and commodities are not necessarily correlated one-to-one -one with the stock market. So they have some of the advantages that bonds do, which is that they can perform differently than the overall stock market, as long as you are careful about which real estate funds you use. Um, and then they have more consistent, if lower capped returns. So, um, so they make up a portion of the fixed income portfolio as well. And for retirees, I'm usually looking at something around like a 60-40 range, um, depending on, of course, you know, what their tolerance for risk is. And for my younger, more like millennial age clients, usually something in the 75-25 range to make sure that we can still rebalance um, in, a, in a market scenario where that's advantageous. You know, the 90-10s and the 100% stocks don't really have a whole lot of opportunity for negative correlation to give you rebalancing opportunities. So. Makes sense. And actually one of the things I wanted to touch on and I'll jump on it, I guess right now, and then we'll pass over to Dwight kind of see your thoughts, but the whole like 60, 40 portfolio is one that <clears throat> has certainly been like the industry standard. And I know there's been a lot of stuff written about it recently. Um, one thing that I find interesting, and this has come up in a couple different things I've read is you know the average veteran financial advisor is like 52 right now and yeah. that's taking in consideration us but then there's a lot of older you know white hairs out there they've done it a long time and the vast majority of their career has seen the 60 40 portfolio work which has been their baseline kind of for any investor if you set them there they're going to be good over time and you can look at different charts and it, 60 40 seemingly seems to win um a figure that really stuck out to me is you know, if you look at 60-40 portfolio over 90 years, so you say really long-term, again, no one's investing for 90 years typically. Um, you have a very finite window to do that. But, you know, 60-40, basically 90% of, or sorry, 91% of the, the return of that portfolio happened over a 22-year period. So if you yeah. look at it, it's from 84 to 2007. 90% of that return came there, which is the vast majority of where these older financial advisors grew up in that environment. So it is much more of a environmental return. So the environment we've been in, which has been bonds have fallen since 84, like bonds started out with real big yields. And if you talk to anyone that had their first mortgage in the 
you know, 10, 15% range, you know, but that we've talked about that before, like how much cash savings and all those different things. It's amazing. And there was a really good uh, podcast with uh, Jim Bianco, who is like a, a strategist and does a lot of research, but the rally in bonds that we've seen since 2009 even is the best statistically in 5,000 years. So I don't know exactly the research that he is citing. It was someone else's research uh, of looking at, you know, fixed income or bonds over, you know, 5,000 years of all these different civilizations. You literally could not find a better 10 year period than what we've just had, which to me blew my mind. And as rates are now next to zero and you have a 60, 40 portfolio, the returns that have happened in the past, I struggle to see those happening in the future. And well, so. The, the 60 40 for me with re, with retirees and pre-retirees specifically goes back to a study that I read uh, a while ago and this is just you know a, a research paper basically that Kitsis wrote on his blog uh, February 20th 2019 the article is called the extraordinary upside potential of secret sequence of return risk in retirement mm -hmm. where he broke down the rates of or the the different portfolios with different withdrawal rates. And basically the terminal value of a 60-40 portfolio after 30 years with a 4% initial withdrawal rate was not negative over any rolling 30 year period since 1871. So if I'm assuming that my clients live for 30 years in retirement, which seems like a pretty conservative assumption, right? Like if they're retiring at 65, cool, they're living till 95. If they're retiring at 60, they're living till 90. And, and some of them may outlive that but the value of the portfolio is still existent uh, at the point which they die. So not only do they have enough money through retirement, but they're actually leaving off with something. And, and so that, that's just a planning tactic, right? It's not to say that that is the literal best way to build a portfolio. I'm sure with tons of research and tons of effort, you could build something that is a more convincing data-driven portfolio than what I do. Um, but that being said, I'm, a, I'm about simple, easy to understand solutions for my clients. And this is something they can wrap their head around. I can point to this chart and say, look, this is based on all the data over the last you know, 100 plus years. If you, if you hold this portfolio for this period for 30 years in retirement and just withdraw 4% from it, you're looking great. And that's the best that we can do, right? We can only make decisions based off the data we have. Um, so this is where my methodology comes from. And now my portfolio is slightly different than what than the rebalance 60-40 rebalance portfolio that gets us quotes in this article because I have the real estate and commodities exposure and stuff like that. But um, that that is where I essentially came to this from, which is I just want to make sure that my clients have enough. I'm not really worried about maximizing the 1% difference when they're in retirement if we've already built the plan and we know that they'll have what they want, right? So, and, that, and that's the financial planner in me versus the investment manager, right? Like if I was an investment manager trying to eke out that different 1%, I might take a different approach. Yeah, and I would assume, and I haven't read all, all the article, and we'll have that with a lot of the stuff we talk about today where someone's going to cite research like, oh, well, we haven't all read the same thing. Um, <laughs> I would assume that's US-based or is that... It, like international as well? Or is that all based on the United States? Do you recall? Uh, let me look back through it. Why don't you continue the conversation and we'll... Yeah, it, it, it's just, I, I'd be interested to hear. Uh, any... This is a 60-40 portfolio of simply large cap US stocks and intermediate government bonds. Thank you. Yeah, so, so US, yeah. got it. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's simple for the data, right? Because if you were going to look back at 30 years and have to parse out seven or eight different asset classes, like a truly complex portfolio, that, that gets infinitely more difficult to generate the data from than just two asset classes, which is probably why he did that for the study. Um, yeah. And it, I think it's really important also to think about it. And sorry, Dwight, I want to get your, your take on this too. But I mean, <laughs> if you think about the United States in the early 1900s to now, United States was an emerging market in the world versus now they are the dominant player. So that's one thing to think about. And I know you can parse data and make the argument however you want to make it to fit your narrative. But um, that, is, that is interesting to, uh, to see that. And it's one that I need to, to look through too. So I appreciate you sharing that because I think framework and where you're coming from something uh, helps because there has to be some basis for what you believe, right? Like there has to be some sort of evidence that that credits what you're thinking through and not just, hey, so-and-so told me this. Like, okay, like what's that based on? 
Right. Um, and just to some degree, I think there's also just value in any investing methodology or financial planning methodology on um, as long as you're data driven and you, and you have like actual stuff to back this up to your point, there's value in, in knowing and having a clear and concise way of following your plan, right? That's what an IPS really is when you're talking about investing. An investment policy statement is really just there so that you have a set of rules to behave by. Because if you consistently behave by that set of rules, you know what you're going to get, right? And so just knowing roughly what you're going to get, whether it's me as the planner working with the client, knowing what that client can expect, or whether it's the client themselves behaving in a certain way consistently, knowing what they can expect, it enables you to make decisions. Whereas if you have no methodology, no backbone about the stuff, that's where the problems occur. That's where you end up buying Delta uh, when Warren Buffett's selling yeah. it, right? Dwight, any thoughts? How do yeah, you I mean, basically copy-paste uh, Colin and Ian. I think there's a few things there, though, like, and I understand, your, I know where you're going with that in terms of uh, fixed income, Isaiah, and like, hey, maybe the returns aren't going to be there. But I think that's sort of a separate point. Like the question is, should you own it? How much of it should you own? And what is the expected rate of return going forward? So should we use 6% or 5% you know, rate of return going forward for bonds? Probably not. Um, so I, I'm not saying that there aren't advisors out there that aren't doing that. Um, but I think I'm going to go out on a limb and say that we're probably all working with our clients especially those that are close to retirement or in retirement and saying, Hey, these are what our expectations are. And I totally get, you know, I always like, one of the things I like to use is that graph that JP Morgan puts out and saying like, look, back in the day in the eighties, you could clip the coupons and live off of, you know, live off a of CD income. And that's probably not really realistic anymore um, to keep up with inflation. Um, and so for folks that are in retirement, they probably have parents that did that. Um, and you know, so just to try to put some things in perspective of like, hey, this is this is why we need equity. We need to be able to, yes, there's going to be volatility with equity, but we need that uh, to help outpace inflation because you're going to live, you know, probably 30 years or more into retirement. Uh, you know, we have like, like Colin's been saying, like, you know, the world has been getting better. We live longer. We live healthier. Uh, you know, these are real, these are real things. Um so anyway, in terms of my philosophy, yeah, I take a global perspective on this. I take a global asset allocation in terms of, uh, in terms of the equity position. Um, you know, some of this for me just goes back to, uh, and I know I'm just a little bit older than you guys, but not too much older, but, uh, you know, going back to school and sitting through some investment courses and I really like the investment side, the investment management side. And then I just remember Dr. Larry Blows basically saying like, look, like you can get diversification with about 20 to 25 different uh, investments. And I can't remember what the research paper was on that, but we basically had to prove that out in Excel, which is kind of cool to show, uh, you know, not 25 airlines, but like completely different things. Um, and then also just like, Hey, over the long run, it's really challenging to consistently outperform the market. And so it's not that you, nobody can, um, I think like what Colin points out is like, Hey, there's millions of people making votes on one side or the other. And a lot of these people, I mean, there's folks that like their only job is to sit there and follow Apple. Like, that's it. I'm like, so you think you're smarter than somebody that, like there's 10 of these people. That's all they do. Like, all right, good luck. Like I'm not that smart. So I'm with, I'm with Ian. Like, I'm just trying to build what, like build plans. Like the investment side is just one piece of it. I tend to work with folks that are, you know, self-employed or own closely held businesses uh, that own real estate, you know, taxes are a big thing. Like I can get you, you know, the tax efficiency on that is going to, like we can work through some of those planning things, um, you know, and I also try to talk with folks of like benchmark to what, like if, you know, if we both run out of money and you do it one year later, what, like, what difference does it make? We're still both, you know, trying to rub two nickels together on a bench. It doesn't make any difference. Like, you know, so how do we, how do we look at everything through the lens of your actual plan and figure out like what's going to work? Cause I just, I do feel like even as an accountant, I mean, tax code is like super complex and I'll hear people like, Hey, I heard my neighbor did this thing. And it's like, why do we have 27 different entities to try to do this weird thing to like try to get this weird tax thing? Like, this is bizarre. Like, can we just simplify it? Or, you know, I like to pick on some state planning attorneys that do a lot of trust-based estate planning. Like, yeah, I guess this works, but you know, just a simple will and a testamentary trust could have done the same thing too. So, um, you know, I, 
I'm kind of with Ian on that where I'm fine with investments. It's just, we're trying to predict the future. So I'm just, I'm fine with trying to get most of the way there, uh, you know, without trying to get super fancy with it with, to the point that somebody's not gonna understand what's going on. And if they don't at least have a general idea of what's going on, it's really hard to get people to stick with, you know, stick with the plan. Um, so, mm-hmm. yeah. And I would go back to, and the, the quote from Corey Hofstein who works, I mean, he's a founder of newfound research and a partner with my firm, but the best asset allocation is one that an investor can stick to. And I totally agree with that. Where I, where I, think we all agree is you cannot predict the future and no one knows what's going to happen in, in, in the future, which I think aligns more with why diversification is even more important. And typically what I see is something that is not diversified. And this is where I think we would differ at times is most people diversification is stocks and bonds. Like that's the vast majority. So if you think of a 60, 40 portfolio, 90% of the risk is in the stock piece, even though you're 60, 40. And well, so I mean, even- the, the perfect example is the, the study that we just talked about, right? The data that I was referencing was built out of only large cap stocks and intermediate bonds, which none of us, I think, would consider a diversified portfolio. And I know that that's just a placeholder for overall return, but it's still, that's how some people are still building their portfolios. Yeah. And I mean, and I totally agree, Dwight, with with everything that you outlined. And I think we all agree, like the planning aspect is the most important outside of this. But, you know, to just stay and remain focused on like just the idea of what does diversification mean? Like, I've have you guys heard of the term like diversification where they talk about, you know, things are you add more things and it's actually worse for you. I I go back to and we'll have to we'll make sure we share it in the show notes. Um, but hedge fund manager. Um, Oh my gosh, I'm spacing on his name all of a sudden. Oh, Ray Dalio. Gosh, I couldn't think of his name for a second. Um, from Bridgewater, he did a great video um, called The Holy Grail of Investing. And the whole idea behind that is if you don't know what's going on, you want to get assets and get as many as you can that do different things that long-term have a return, but aren't going to move in line with each other. I think most investors feel uncomfortable doing that. And that's why you need to own some things that will suck. And the whole idea of diversification is you're always saying sorry behind that. And if you don't know what the future holds, you would think you would want to own more things that are doing things differently versus I'm all for simple. Um, but it should be simpler, but no simpler. Like it it should be simple, but you should also get to the end of the road. And if you don't know what's going on, like why wouldn't you want to add things that do do different, different things that aren't correlated to stocks or bonds or aren't doing other things. And one of the big things, again, going back to, to Dalio is talking about like regime shifts and there's a great chart, I've shared in a bunch of different articles and stuff that I've written from Resolve Asset Management that talks about, you know, the different regimes that are out there. So you can think about inflation, which we haven't really had any sort of inflation since the seventies. Right. And I go back to most advisors in the industry, us being young, even the old guys, none of them were really around doing anything for clients in, you know, an inflationary environment where there's no growth. Um, Inflationary boom. So you think about after the dot-com crash, emerging markets just did awesome. So you know, that piece of it, deflationary boom, which is where we've been since 2009, U.S. stocks, U.S. bonds, real estate, all done really well. And then you think about the great financial crisis, uh, deflationary bust, which is just everything goes to shit and nothing really works other than stuff that's defensive. And what I've always said is you need to build a portfolio that can do well in everything and have the ability to adapt and adjust. Where I think we differ is I do believe that you and, and call it tactical asset allocation, call it market timing, call it whatever you want, but being able to be flexible and shift versus a binary, I buy and hold, I own these proportions and we rebalance every year. I don't necessarily think that's the best way to go to market and, and go and invest for the long term. Because if you look at it and I'm just, you know, cite different things. So Jeremy Siegel, he has a book called Stocks for the Long Run, the definitive guide for financial Markets, returns, and long-term investing strategies, super long name to it. But he basically went out and, and used a timing strategy of being either in stocks or in bonds. And from 1927 to 2006, um, basically the simple concept of not owning something that is doing poorly outperformed just a buy and hold stationary S&P 500 by 4%. So like that's, that's interesting. And again, it's only to 2006. So there's been a number of years between now and then, and we just came off a fantastic run from 2009 to 2019. 
um, the thing that kind of got me down the rabbit hole of, of trend following, tactical asset allocation, market timing, whatever you want to call it, whatever you want to call it, was the work by Meb Faber. And he wrote a quantitative approach to tactical asset allocation. Again, that's a mouthful. And this is where, again, I, I differ because I just want to see, show me the, the results, show me a, a methodology, because I'm all about models. And there's proof in just looking at biases and other things that if, if you're model driven, if you just have a this is what we do and it's all set in advance. It's not market timing of saying, Hey, I'm going to buy let's, or sell Delta because X, Y, Z happens. It's, this is what I do. And it doesn't matter what in the world is going on from that standpoint. But Meb's work was done before the great financial crisis, which I think gives it a lot more credibility. And it's been redone since, but if you just break it down from the seventies to, and it went to 2012, buy and hold S and P 500 up almost 10%, 9.9. That's awesome. Like that's a great return but you still have a maximum loss of 46%. And there's a really well-renowned or well-renowned uh, investment manager, Cliff Asnes with AQR. I love his quote, we're all bigger wusses than we think we are. So everyone wants to be aggressive. Everyone wants to have you know, stocks because they outperform over long terms. And then when shit hits the fan, people don't want that. They do things and, and you can say whatever you want about like what just happened with COVID. It would happen so fast. And I know there are some really good reports out there that, you know retail investors at Vanguard didn't flinch. Like they just kept holding, which is great. And that's what they should do. My, my challenge is always what happens when you have 10 years of really no returns and what they hold. Are they still gonna be that consistent after 10 years? I'm not saying like six months of a, a drawdown and a bounce back. I'm saying 10 years where what they were doing doesn't work. And so Meb continues and, and shows you know, a couple different strategies of using either being in stocks or bonds, whether it's three months, six months, 12 months, nine months of saying, you know, if, if stocks are outperforming over that time period, they're going to be long. If they're in bonds, they're not. All of those, all of those ideas outperform buy and hold. And that to me is so interesting because it's so counterintuitive to everything I was taught for so long. And just seeing there's a number of other research pieces, and again, not to dominate the, the time on the air talking about all that stuff, but there's so much research showing that it works. It's just really damn hard to do because if you look at some of these different strategies from 2009 to 2019 to 2020 today, they, they aren't going to perform as much. They, they will lag. They will suffer. And it's how long can you stay convicted to what you're going to do? I think regardless of that, if you have something that has shown that over time will outperform, that gives some credibility to why you should do it. And again, it maybe is more complex and maybe it's, you know, selling a pipe dream that's not really real, but um, evidence shows that it works multiple sources show that it works and well, i think go ahead and that's that's where i can test and it's not from the perspective of me believing that it wouldn't work from a mathematical perspective um because math wise i understand the idea of tactical asset allocation i understand having you know rule sets set up for when you buy and sell things and when you switch um when you switch allocations in order to pivot i just don't really see the, it, I, I guess, let me, let me use this example. So um, Dave Ramsey, which we have questionable opinions on him, uh, has a really, really good method for helping people pay off debt. That is the one positive thing I will always say about him, which is the debt snowball, right? Which is this idea that if you have multiple sources of debt, you don't start with the highest interest balance, you start with the lowest balance because that enables you to then use more cash to pay off the next balance. And it gives you the endorphin rush of having done the exact thing that you need to do. That's and those are two really, really big points. One, it frees up more cash flow. Two, it gives you the opportunity to feel like you're achieving. And I think that this is an analogous situation. What actually works for clients, in my opinion, based on what I've seen, is having the simplest possible methodology that they can digest in a five-minute conversation because then you can have that same conversation with them when they're about to screw up. And they will be like, oh, I remember that exact conversation from three and a half years ago where Ian told me this is our strategy and we're going to stick with it because of all this data that he knows about. So I'm not saying that I don't believe that tactical allocation mathematically works. Just like I'm not saying that I don't believe that paying down the highest interest rate debt mathematically works out better, right? 
but I am saying that behaviorally, if you're a financial planner, I think it is your job to simplify investing for clients and make it as digestible as possible so that they have the greatest chance of regardless of whether you personally are around sticking with the strategy because none of us know how long our careers are going to last. I, I hope mine goes for 35, six, 60 years, like somewhere, some ridiculous number. I enjoy what I do. I love it every day. But if I get hit by a bus tomorrow, my portfolio is very obvious. My clients can talk to any one of you three and they'll understand what's going on, right? So that, that's, that's where I draw the line and say, you know, I, I, I get why tactical is better. I just don't think it's better for the people I work with. Can I, can I reply before yeah. I let the rest of you oh, jump for in? Sure. Yeah, so, so I know that I outlined and talked for a long period, but it's pretty simple. You own things that are going up and you don't own things that are going down. And so one of the biggest benefits that I think behaviorally it gives is so when your clients call and say, oh my gosh, what do I need to do? It's already decided. You're either taking risk off the table, so it's a risk off environment or it's risk on. You lower the drawdown so you have people that aren't getting as freaked out because they already know that something is in place. And then materially, the, the goal of compounding is if you can continue to keep the machine moving forward, even if returns aren't as high, we all know the, the magic of compounding. So if I don't suffer the 45, 50, 60% loss that someone's going to have at some point, and I think everyone can agree that buy and hold, if you are in stocks, is a 50% loss at some point. Like you will have that. You will experience it and it will suck. And preventing them from getting to that point, and I'm not saying that trend is all I do. So I do have buy and hold and we'll get into that in a second. I do think it needs to be part of it for that very reason. It's simple to understand. So you are preventing the losses to help your money compound more. And it is my responsibility to maximize the, the chance of likelihood for them to get to success. I think that does that. It is mathematically proven. It is not something where I am making a decision. Um, it's not hard to grasp. There's a couple different things that are fairly easy to read. I get that we have a difference in opinion. I knew that this was going to happen because I knew we had a difference of opinion. But um, I think one of the biggest things that you always will hear, and this might be the comeback of, you know, Colin, Dwight, Ian, one of you is, you know, what if you miss the 10 best days of the market? And there's those charts that will show you that, right? Like that always comes back. And so if you look at, you know, buy and hold from 1990s to, or sorry, 1900 to uh, 2016, uh, it's basically buy and hold is nine and a half percent, which is kind of where people get that, you know, eight to nine percent a lot of times. And if you miss the best 10 days, it drops to seven and a half. So you lose like 2% if you miss just the best 10 days of the market. If you miss the best 10 in the worst 10, which usually best 10 and worst 10 all kind of cluster together, uh, it actually improves your performance, but marginally, very marginally, like it's 9.8. So it's a little bit better, but it lowers, dramatically lowers the max loss. And then if you miss the worst 10, you improve by about two and a half percent. And your max loss is about 40. So I think there are a lot of benefits to it. I think the hardest part is not necessarily when things are going bad. It's when things are really good and making money is really easy. And sometimes these things will lag because it's not a panacea. That's not what I'm trying to tell anyone that it's a panacea. I just think the, the asset management industry. So a lot of the, not necessarily us, but firms that have investments and started with mutual funds, they preach this buy and hold because that's how they made money. Right. And you couldn't necessarily do it because there was so much cost and fees and all these different things where now it's not hard to implement a strategy like this before it was really difficult because there's so many costs involved you can do it it's not that hard today but the world is always changing and evolving i think that that, that needs to always be coming into play as well but that i guess is my rebuttal to to the point but i think they're both extremely valid i think that's actually a really good point um there are a lot of things in the financial industry that people don't inherently question that have changed you know we are a perfect example of that like cell phone RIA is working virtually recording podcasts together didn't exist 10 years ago. And moreover, like 30 years ago, financial planning wasn't really a thing. So you're right. There, there are trends and shifts that happen within our own industry that we need to stay on top of. And, and I appreciate the argument because I think that it is true. I, I guess I just struggle to, to implement more complex models for a differential of fractions of a percent of return year over year um knowing that my clients will struggle to understand it and my literal pitch to clients when i tell them about my investment management service is you're going to pay me more than you'll pay vanguard right um but you won't have to worry about anything because we'll handle everything for you account opening you know blah 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 it's a convenience service 
to me. It's not, it's not a, I'm going to beat the market for you, or I'm going to beat the buy and hold strategy. So it, that's just a philosophical difference. I yeah. And it's not necessarily, and I don't, I don't even, I don't even position it as I'm trying to outperform the market. To me, it is mm -hmm. one of those things that again, to benchmark to what, to what Dwight talked about. Yeah. To benchmark, to hit what you need to hit. And if it's a portion of what you're doing and it can help them stick with the plan because you're going to, you're going to take some chips off the table if it does get really bad. So let's go, let's rewind back a couple months. Instead of being down 30, let's say accelerated down to 50. There's a lot of people that would have really, really been hurting if they would have just continued to hold. And I know that only happens once every, you know, 10 or 15 years, but mm. it does happen in that, yeah, it's the in that single drop. moment, that single <laughs> moment could change the, the trajectory of their ability to accomplish goals long-term. And I would challenge the, you know, fractions of return don't matter over time. If you look at over 30 years, um, you know, it's millions and millions of dollars for people. If you can like add up all your client accounts. I so I wasn't me, saying it important. didn't matter. I was saying the differential between me focusing on the fractions of return and me spending my time increasing their savings rate is, is what is different. So that's where I view my role as being different than what you, like an investment manager's role is. Does that make sense? So like the client having a thousand dollars more a month saved because I spent that extra two hours working on their cash flow is an infinitely larger, not infinitely, but a, a significantly larger return than a than a fraction of a percent adjusted over 30 years. Yeah. Because if they save a thousand dollars a month extra over the next 30 years, that's an insane amount of money. And right? we all, we all yeah. agree the baseline of all those things matter. I think yeah, again, yeah. trying to come back to just specifically this topic. And again, for, for some, and, and maybe it's like, hey, this topic isn't something that I spend a lot of time on and I don't think it matters, totally fair. I personally think it matters and I personally think there's a lot that can be done on the periphery to make some changes versus what is the you know, three fund portfolio or other things where you're, yeah, it's, th those might do really well for 10 or 15 years and then you get to a point where, oh shit, and then it completely erases everything that you accomplished prior to that. And I know that so many people will push back and say, Hey, you know, we've learned, we've learned, we've learned. You go through an environment where you lose money for 10 years because inflation spikes and you, are you still going to hold that saying, I'm going to hold this for 30 years. I don't think there's that many people that are that dedicated and motivated and understand to the core like that versus why wouldn't I want to have you know, diversify your diversifiers, which is another Hofstein quote, which I love is I want to own a lot of different things that I don't give a shit what market we're in inflation, deflation, growth, no growth. We're going to do fine. We'll make money or we're going to limit our losses because again, compounding matters. And at the end of the day, that's all that matters. I want to make sure that people can compound their money and it's great to be buy and hold and, and 60, 40, and it's worked well. It has. And I just talked about that, right? Like it's been fantastic. That's why it's the kind of heart and soul of what our industry is built around today. I just don't, foresee that being the future. And I could be wrong because this is going to be timestamp. So we'll see. Right. But um, I, I just, I struggle with the fact that saying that investing is just going to be stocks and bonds. I know that's not what we're saying here and not saying that anyone's saying that, but the correlation. So again, if you're negative one, it means you're exactly opposite of what's happening versus a positive one is you're moving in lockstep. Zero is you know, uncorrelated. I think assets, and I'm going back to like the Dalio thing. If you have like a 0.6 or less, it can add diversification to what you're doing. If we rewind again, a couple months ago, everything went to one. So many things went to one from a correlation standpoint. REITs went to one with stocks, you know, there, and so many different areas where it's like, oh, I, I'm diversified, but you really aren't at times. And I think people find that out in the times when they don't want to find out when it is really, really hard. And that's what I'm advocating is for having different pieces together that allow you to see success regardless of the outcome, because we all don't know, you know, my crystal ball broke just the same time that your guys did. We don't have it. So I think just aligning to one version of something and instead of just like doing an ensemble of buy and hold trend, owning alternatives, doing different things all together works well. You're not going to look the same as the market. I think that's the biggest struggle. I think that's what we're going back to is it's, Trust me, it's a hell of a lot easier if I would just say, you know what, I own three funds. This is what you get. I can show you the back, the chart going back to you know the 1800s that this works. Just buy and hold, don't touch it. That would be so much easier for me. So much easier. My life would be so much easier. I choose to do something different because I believe in it and that's how I personally invest my money. So I, 
I think you have to have conviction. If you believe what you're doing is the best way, then more power to you. Would you say that you're the biggest difference then maybe between our buy and holds call it um, or, or just a buy and hold would be that you're just going to cash a little bit more often and then risk on risk off. It's, it's not necessarily just cash. That would be, it could be, well, A, I think it's alternatives. So I, I'm a big fan of alternatives, which would be like the best example right now. I'm, I'm a fan of farmland. So it's inflationary hedge. It has good income. I think for the right person, you can, there's a couple different services out there where you can buy fractional farmland. I think that's awesome. It's not the right fit for everybody. You have to have, you have, to have some cash. We can buy ownership in a farm with 10 or $15,000. They yield four or 5%. You can't get that anywhere else. Now it's not liquid, it's illiquid, but I really like that as, as a great you know, asset allocation play. So that's very different where I don't think a lot of people are looking and thinking about that. Um, CTAs, which is gonna be, so commodity trading advisors can be far too advanced in like getting into the weeds um, here, but it's basically something that it's gonna take the ideas of momentum and trend. So things that stay in motion will continue to, to stay in motion from a momentum and trend being long short where they're gonna be able to make money if it's going up or if it's going down. I personally don't run anything where I am shorting because I'm not intelligent enough to do that. Um, back to kind of Dwight's thought on that. Like, you know, there's certain things that I know my limitations. I want to keep it fairly simple if I'm executing it, but there are really, really talented people that, again, they have no correlation to stocks or bonds. They made money through March, through February. Um, and that's an area where you can rebalance out of some of those assets back into something like stocks and then go along, you know, the way. Um, Gold, I think that most people don't own hardly any gold in portfolios at all. I, I'm a believer in gold. I think it makes sense. We talked about cryptocurrency. We talked about that before. I'm not saying that you know my clients own that, but um, I think there's a lot of other ways. So for me, it's just trying to add in as many things that can react differently and, and work in different environments outside of kind of tradition what I see. And I've seen a lot of different portfolios from a lot of different people. I've seen a, an account statement that was 200 pages long from Merrill Lynch and it literally could be six ETFs and lower the cost by about $15,000. Yeah. That's not I mean, diversification. That, like it's not adding more things. It's adding, it could be five things that all react and do different things. That's more where I'm at. Yeah. I agree with, I, I definitely agree with that part of your philosophy a hundred percent. Like that's why I have commodities and, and REITs in my portfolio as well is because when I, when I look at, you know, bonds as the only, like when people build a portfolio that has bonds as the only negatively correlated asset to stocks, I sit there and I go, that is based on an assumption over the last, you know, X period of time that could be proven false at any moment, right? So like looking, looking at gold or other commodities within a portfolio as an as a means of giving it some additional diversification just makes a ton of sense for me. And we're in a world with ETFs and mutual funds where you can do that for, with like two clicks of a button. So why would you worry about, like, why would you not, I guess is my point. Um, I, I totally agree with, with using alternatives as a, as a way to spread out some of the diversification within a portfolio. Yeah. I also like the idea of uh, looking at it in the reverse of like, what if you're not in the market for the 10 best up days, how that, you know, kills your returns. But what if you're not in the market for the 10 worst down days? You know, I think that's a, a great thing to ask. Um, I just think on an execution standpoint, it's just so difficult and so hard to reproduce that, uh, you know, and, and I think I, and I'm not like a 60, 40 or a 90, 10 guy. Like I do it in uh, time horizons. So my first bucket is a one to three year and your cash baby or short-term treasuries or your something very, very low. And then your four to 10 year, which is seven year period is, is very low returning bonds and, and just an ETFs of lots of different low returning, um, but, but also low volatility assets. And then your 11 year plus bucket is a diversified pot of equities. And that kind of creates your overall model. So whether that ends up, you know, I have some 70 year olds that have fixed income sources that they literally don't need to withdraw anything from their accounts. And they have their massive emergency fund. They have the vacation funds they have and, and they still are in a 90, 10. 
And they're like, yeah, if the market goes down, I don't really care because I have number one, my income is perfectly fine and very protected. I have all the cash I could possibly ever need. You know, I don't have to pay off debt. I, you know, I'm, I'm very good. And if the market goes from, uh, you know, my, my portfolio goes from a million to 500,000 in my 11 year plus bucket. And we, I have just beaten it into their mind. This is 11 year plus money, 24 seven. And the moment that it goes to 10 year money, well, then we got to take it from the third stair step and put it on the second stair step. And then the moment it goes to three year money, we got to take it from the second stair step to the first stair step. So, and then, you know, to, to put on a little technology on top of that, I use Betterment for my rebalancing. And I agree that there's, you know, rebalancing just like, you know, once a year, once a quarter is a little bit arbitrary. So we rebalance after drifts. So, you know, that's been proven also to help portfolio returns is, is rebalancing at certain periods. Um, so like, I think if there was like a, a tactical model that was like, you know, yes, when the inverse of, you know, uh, you know, short-term treasuries and long-term treasuries uh, go inverted, then that's when you take, you know, money off the table. Like, I think if there was like a really proven method and time horizon to do that, um, you know, I, you know, isn't that kind of how the market, well, then everyone would do that. That's like the January effect. And then now, now the January effect happens in December. Well then shit, once they figure that out, then it happens in November, you know, sell in May go away. I'm going to do it in April. Well then shit, everyone's going to do it in March. And then everyone does it in, in February. Oh, well now none of this tactical stuff to beat the market works. Um, I just think it's really hard to implement. It's just really, really tough. And, and I think, of course, back to Dwight's point, and then I'd probably like to hear his take on all this stuff, the quiet guy, uh, is uh, what's the point, right? You know, I'm not here to try to deliver better returns. None of my clients are going to die with a smile on their face knowing that they beat the market or even were similar to the market but had less volatility um, as long as they can execute it. And as long as they know with a fact that the market is going to go down 50%, maybe 70% in their 11 year plus bucket. And they're not going to screw up because they have tons of other resources and it's very well designed based on their specific needs, man, let's focus on your savings rate and uh, how you're going to, you know, coach your little leagues team to a stage or, you know, to a championship. Yeah, hundred percent. I take the same, you know, the Timothy Guyton slash Michael Kitsis, Wade Fowl mentality to that of looking at buckets and saying, here's when you need the money. And that's the whole point. <laughs> like that's the purpose of this stuff. And so I feel like uh, six months ago, it was hard to convince people, Hey, look, you need, you know, your emergency savings needs to be in cash. Like if you're going to need it, it's cash and uh, trying to get people to not put it in, you know, random stuff. Um, like you need that money. And now here we are. And it's like, well, yeah, this is why we need it in cash. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's one of the conversations I have with folks, which is, Hey, these equity pieces are here for the longer piece. And yes, we talk about reminding like exactly like what you said, Colin, like, Hey, you know, look, like we're not planning on using this tomorrow. So yes, it hurts. Like, like, no, this doesn't feel good, but it's out there, but Hey, guess what? Like some of the long-term bonds, the long-term treasuries you had here did real well when this just happened. And so to your point is it's like, yeah, we always are saying, you know, we're sorry because of that diversification piece. Um, but that's, that's sort of the reality. I think that when I look at it is like, if you need this money soon, then it needs to be in cash. And especially for those folks that are getting into retirement, um, you know, I think there's one of those, Hey, pensions don't exist. You know, I think like every retiree that I've worked with have some sort of pension on top of social security. So it doesn't mean that it's huge. It doesn't mean like that all they're getting, um, but like, I've got a few people that work for the, you know, the state out here and I really like computing that number into a, like a present value and saying like, look, I get, you don't have this huge 401k balance. Like, you know, your spouse does because you were a state employee, but that money is worth X and it's going to get paid forever. Now we can have the conversation of how well do we think Colorado is going to stick around or CalPERS is going to stick around or all these other things. But a lot of that stuff has already been punted back out to other insurance companies. But my point is you're getting cash flow from here. So you don't need a hundred thousand dollars out of your portfolio. You might only need 20. And so to Colin's point, like That's, yeah. our portfolio might look a lot different from person one to person two. 
Um, so it's just a lot of those types of things. Now, I guess to your point, Isaiah, I get it. It's not mutually exclusive. Like you can do all of those things and still run the model you want to run. But, um, you know, I, I think kind of what Colin and Ian are saying is like, there's a lot of value there to say like, look, this is why we're doing it. And just coming back to like, what are you convicted in? And what, what is going to be from an advisory perspective, how are we going to be able to help our clients do this? Um, you know, like I'll give you an example. Like to me, it's just kind of interesting because I come from a different world, right? Like that we're even having this conversation. Like there is no, <laughs> there, this conversation does not happen in, as, as often in tax world. Like, you know, it's like, this is either deductible or it's not. It checks this box or doesn't. Like it's not, we're not like, you know. So for me, when I've come from that world, it's like, why does this client have 27 different, you know, publicly traded partnerships? Like, ah, okay, because the advisor's making boatloads of money. I'm in the same boat, like I've seen the same thing as you, Isaiah. Like, why does this client have a 400 page, uh, you know, uh, trading document that we're getting at the end of the year, this 1099B, it's ridiculous. Um, oh, because the client, because the advisor's making money on transactions, got it. Or like, why is this K1 sitting in an IRA? Like, that makes no sense. Like, um, you know, so to me, that's where I come from it is like, I'm just always a little bit skeptical on like what investment advisors are doing because of, of the alignment of incentives. But even like philosophically, like I've talked about it with you guys privately, where like, hey, when should a client elect S-Corp? Like there's accountants out there that are like, do it on day one, doesn't matter if there's any income. And I take more of a philosophy of, hey, you need, <laughs> uh, yeah, it, like it, that's fine. But I take more of a philosophy of, hey, you probably want to wait a little bit longer. You've got... Um, uh, uh, reasonable compensation issues to deal with. You've got uh, complexity issues, you, you know, all these other things. And so there's certainly some gray area there, but like, uh, you know, it's just kind of a different, different world that I work in. So I, like I said, I kind of copy paste what Colin and, and, you know, Ian are doing there in terms of, okay, when do you need this money? What, what does this look like? And here's what our expectations are. And, you know, can we all live with this and making sure everybody's on the same page before we're, you know, we're moving forward. And I guess, you know, to your point, Isaiah, like if I'm not confident in my investment philosophy, then how am I supposed to articulate that to a client? And how's a client going to be confident in what I'm doing if I'm not confident in it? So I just go based on what I'm confident in and what uh, has made a lot of sense. But yeah, my big takeaway is like, if you freaking need the money, then it probably needs to be in cash. And I think I would go as far as even what Kitsis was uh, mentioned, and this might've been on one of his episodes, was just like investments really aren't for everybody. Like there are groups of people that honestly, like probably an insurance-based uh, financial plan is really what's going to make the most sense. Like they just don't have any tolerance for risk. They want to see that cash flow in. And then, you know, looking at immediate annuities or something like that is probably going to be the most sense for them or, you know, um, CDs or something. And that's okay. Like, I think that's the other thing is that it, this all has to be a yes or no. And it's like, I think, you know, that was, I really liked what you kind of said on that. Like, sometimes you just got to say, Hey, look, like this is my philosophy of financial planning. This is the services that I offer. It sounds like you would be better served by somebody that is an expert in this area. Like here's where, here's where we need to go. Like I have no awesome. problem doing that. I do that now. There's, there's a, you know, there's plenty of people I talk to that I'm like, I'm not the right financial advisor for you for a variety of different reasons but I know somebody that is. Yeah. I think in, I go back to kind of the, again, thinking about a core belief that I have in it, no, not going to surprise anyone that listens to the podcast. It's from uh, the behavioral investor from Dr. Daniel Crosby. So insert the, the laughing uh, audience there, but he talks about how for an, any investment needs to be empirically supported, theoretically sound and behavioral and behaviorally stringent. So I look at that the same way, like most of my clients. So they're, you know, a medical profession, like they're not going to go in and do something for somebody and say, well, this is what I think there's going to be some basis behind it. And I, and that's my biggest encouragement to anyone from an investing standpoint is what's the like evidence show behind that. I believe what I believe because there's a hell of a lot of evidence behind it and we can go around and around some blue in the face and it's fine that some people aren't going to believe it. I think, you know, vindication is one of those things that will happen over the long term, and we'll have a conversation you know, with, with people that don't believe that over, over a long time. So like one of the big things that I don't believe in and this, you know, we need to wrap up at some point, but like market cap weighting to me, it's, it's, it's hilarious that that is the default of most large ETFs and, and just the way the market is, is made, which for those that don't understand market cap literally is ranking investment. So let's just use stocks as the example. 
It is literally taking the stocks and saying, how many shares does this company have outstanding? And what's the price of the company? That's it. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. And the only reason market cap weighting is so popular is because in the 70s when they're trying to build indexes, equal weighting was too complex and too hard with the rebalancing and the costs. So they wanted something that was easy that they could set on automatic. That is the story. And that's how it got developed. So the reason that some of these huge names, the Googles, the Amazons, all those in these market cap weighted indexes, which is the default for most things today, what most people have, um, it, it makes no sense. It, it, there is zero sense to it. And it is, it is academically proven that it is inefficient and it is not the best way to do it. Now, granted, those indexes have done really well. And that's where people come back and say, well, it works. Congratulations, it works. It works today. It works for so long. But there are studies and there was a study done by Cass Business School in the UK, and, and this was in 2013, so it's a little dated, but almost anything they looked at, including monkeys throwing darts, was a better way to allocate an index than market cap weighting. So dividend weighting, you know, book value of the company, sales, composite weighting, cash flow weighting, all these different things. This is proven, yet most people have market cap weighting, and they're just going to say, well, it works. Okay. That is interesting. I'll definitely give you that all day long. It, it, and, and especially in this new indexing environment, like that's just going to keep fueling the flame, you know, and just bringing more money to those top few names, right? If everybody, you know, puts in a hundred bucks into the pot and their top five holdings are 20%, you know, Google, Facebook, Apple, the, you know, top few companies. And then the other uh, $80 goes to the rest of the 495 firms and the S&P 500. Isn't that just going to continue to to kind of spread the gap there or like, you know, continue to write, bring those companies up? But um, yeah, it's it, it will be interesting to see how it all pans out, no doubt. Well, and to your point, Isaiah, the reason that was designed was because trading costs were a thing and like actually grabbing the assets had a high cost to it back in, you know, well, pre the internet and definitely before like the last five, 10 years where everything became very tech centric and, and instantaneous transactions and all that kind of stuff. So I think we may be in a world where a lot of that stuff hopefully starts to go away, right? A lot of the quote unquote efficiency plays that were out there, like, well, why did we do this? Well, because at the time, it's like if the answer starts with, well, because at the time, then your methodology needs to be updated. That's <laughs> because it's not, you didn't say because today, you said because at the time. So we need to update that methodology. Um, and market cap weighting is definitely one of them. You're right. Yeah, it just, it's one of those things that it just bugs the hell out of me, but it is the default and it's done really well. And especially since 2009, it's kicked everything else's butt. So I mean, that's why I think it's just ingrained more and more into people as like, this is the right way to do things. I mean, the and, one that get the one that gets me is that a shares still exist. I, I can't figure it out. I mean, yeah, I know why and, it's because there's yeah. an incentive system, but it's the same idea, right? It's like, well, they needed to pay advisors somehow. So they paid them by selling mutual funds. And it's like, okay, but you can pay your advisor directly now. So why does it exist? Well, because at the time. <laughs> and, and yeah, and, and I agree. Like I would much rather have someone in a market cap weighted S&P 500 fund for free, which they can get today. Right. Versus an actively managed, like that's not ever been what, yeah, what I'm after. And I, I totally agree. No, like, and, way and I wasn't, dis yeah, I wasn't yeah, disagreeing with you on yeah. the market cap weighting. I was just yeah. listing another example of an outdated methodology that still exists and yeah. is prevalent. Yeah. Yeah. So for me, it's all like, there are, there are, again, there are ways to do things better. The default, like doing different, like the three fund portfolio, there's a million other ways to do things way worse. So it's not like that's the end all evil. Mm -hmm. And I, I say that I'm just that's like, a good point. I would, I would much rather make little steps that have been shown to be better. And if we're truly a long-term investor, if you truly will tell me that you're a long-term investor, there's a better way to do things. So let's do that. And I would be foolish to not want someone to do that and yeah uh i mean it's just a topic that you know i i again i go back to like, you have to believe in in what you do you have to practice what you preach i think for all of us i have at least more respect for someone that even if i disagree with the way that they implement things as long as they're doing the same thing as their client i have a hell of a lot more respect for them than the people that preach one thing and they're doing something completely different 
Like if you were telling me all about like, Hey, we buy, you know, these different ETFs and do this. And then you're day trading stocks on the side. Like what the heck? That doesn't make any sense. If you think that's truly best, do it for your clients. Um, I think that's important too. Yeah, for sure. Probably a good place to end it. Yeah. We, we, yeah, we, so. we basically have changed probably zero people's minds with, with all this discussion, but there's going to be a lot of different things that we link to. Um, and hopefully it proves to be an interesting episode because we talked about philosophy of uh, diversification, financial planning and investing in general for God, 45 minutes now. Yeah. So hopefully I always just tell people, do your own, do your own due diligence, do your own research. And then if you come back with something that you think makes sense, then, then implement that, but don't just take, you know, one person's word for it. Don't take mine for, for everything that I said, go read, go read the same stuff that I've read. Go, go listen to the different things and, and make the decisions that make sense for you. Or hire someone who does read all this shit so that you can focus well, on what you enjoy. Yeah, hire Isaiah. <laughs> agree. No, and I, and I agree with that too. But um, I just think that as long as there's a, a firm foundation, there's a, a backing to, to what someone believes, it's, uh, it's important that they can articulate why they believe that. And if they can't, then, you know, let, let's have a conversation. Good sure. stuff. Well, right. thank you to everyone who's uh, still listening and hopefully you learned something, has some takeaways here. Um, I know I sure did. This was fun. Listening, we hope we were able to make you laugh and allow you to learn something. For all inquiries and questions, please email financialforesight at gmail.com. If you're on Twitter, feel free to give us a follow and ask a question there as well. Remember, the podcast is for general information and entertainment purposes only, and you should not consider what we've talked about investment or tax advice. Please consult your professional team before implementing anything we talked about. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and maybe leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you, and thank you so much for listening. We'll be talking again soon.